Hi, this is AJ Pillow from Twisted Sister. Are you listening to John and Iron City Rocks? Hi, this is Rick Emmett of Triumph, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. What's happening? This is Steve Blaze from Lillian Axe, and you're rocking with Iron City Rock. Welcome to episode 141 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. We've got uh, two exciting guests for you today on the show. Uh, guitarist Steve Blaze of the band Lillian Axe. Uh, Lillian Axe was a band that uh, kind of came out of the later part of the 80s out of Louisiana. They uh, were worked with Robin Crosby of Rat. Uh, rose to fame, uh, at least mild success with the album Love and War uh, and the follow-up album Poetic Justice. Uh, and then have really stayed active all along the way, and they are about to release their 11th studio album. So we're going to talk to Steve all about that. And then also, being that we are so close to February 1st, 2012, which is the date 2112, we have Rush on the Brain. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it on Facebook, we have National Rush Day, as we're declaring it, an event that if you RSVP, we'll be giving away a copy of a book. The book is called Mean Deviation, and it is a history of progressive heavy metal. So uh, we're going to talk to the author about the book, learn all about that. So before we get started, let's listen to the new track from the Lillian album, Lillian Axe album. This is called Caged In. <laughs> Killer hanging by his neck Catch a worthless killer hanging by his neck I- 
the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show from the band Lily and Axe, the mastermind behind the band, Steve Blaze. How are you doing, Steve? Hey, how are you, man? Doing really, really well. It's uh, great to get a chance to talk to you again. We are on the eve of um, the new record. Um, I'm assuming you're calling it 11, is the Roman numeral for 11, the days. 11, the days before tomorrow, or... I, I didn't really ever think about that. Maybe confusing people that did not understand Roman numerology. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying so, to. Think. Uh, no, that's cool. Yeah, it's our eleventh album, so uh, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there to remind people. Already, people are going, "It's not really your eleventh album because you have a live album in this one." I'm like, "It's the eleventh album. Just deal with it." <laughs> yeah. Hey, as a, as a fan, I appreciate that that live album just as much. You know, that's uh Thank you. I, I, ever since Kiss did a, a live album, to me, that's always the testament of a band. It's, you know, it's more interesting than the greatest hits to me, always to hear them live. So, uh, You know, it's really hard to capitalize sound, too. And I was really happy because I was uh, not sold on the whole live album thing. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, for years I've told people I don't want to do a live album because it doesn't, to me, Boston Fate doesn't, it's very difficult to really capture the, the power behind live music on uh, on on a CD. Yeah. And, um, you know, I said, we'll do it, but if it doesn't come out well, I'm not releasing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did, and we spent a lot of time on it. It's one show, all, you know, those are the tracks. That's the one. We didn't, we were fortunate that we didn't have many errors during the show. Yeah. No mechanical or a sound that flubs or anything. So it came out really well, and uh, I was really proud of that album. I think it sounded pretty good. It was close to... Uh, capturing the live as we possibly could get. Yeah, that's that, that album was in done in Texas, correct? Yeah, it was done in Houston. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have to go back and uh, dust that one off. I know I've spent a lot of time with your recent material recently. <laughs> um, the new album. You want to talk a little bit about? I mean, obviously there's been uh, you know some vocal changes, uh, but maybe can you kind of compare contrast uh, the new record versus uh, the, the last album, the Shadows album? Yeah, sure. Uh, Deep Black Shadows last year uh, started off as being basically it was just going to be an EP. We, we were going to just you know put like four or five songs on there um, as an introduction to a new label. And then once we started doing it, you know I, I was I was toying with the idea of putting out an album, which would have been the best of all of our ballads. You know, one of our strengths I think is is majestic and epic ballads, and a lot of fans really seem to gravitate to Ghost of Winter, World Turn and Promised Land, see you someday. Well, it'd be cool to have, have a record of just all of these type songs. So I said, well, why don't we do some acoustic versions of some of the songs from the earlier records that uh, with Derek and um, do a different kind of version, do stuff like a really nice guitars and strings versions and said, okay, so we do that. Next thing you know, we're doing a nine-song record with five acoustic songs and then four new uh, rockers. Mm -hmm. And um, so it kind of evolved like that. But that album, um, you know, was uh, just, it was kind of a weird album <clears throat> because all the songs are really, uh, they kind of go off on a tangent a little bit into sure. the direction where we are now. You know, every album that we've done, you know, it, it's like a whole new turn into a new area, but they all maintain the same signature style and uh, idiosyncrasy that 
I guess, make us unique to what we are. Yeah, um, yeah. You can turn no it. No matter who, you know, what the song is about, what's the instrumentation, it's always going to maintain just that some intangible feel mm-hmm. that's just it. It's Lily and Ellie. Even with the new singer, you know, the new album sounds like, it sounds like a Lillian Axe record. I think it's the best sounding sonically uh, due to the fact that Sylvia Massey and her team mixed it. Um, I think, it, you know, Brian did a fantastic job. I think it's one of the most cohesive, um, just, you know, some records to me, you, you almost have to listen to them from front to end as a as like reading a novel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, but they fit and interlock into each other, and it, it just works as like this journey that you go through. I think that's how this album is. You know, I spent a lot of time, as we do on every record, putting the order together in the sequence of songs. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it seems like, ah, I should put that song here. But um, in the end, I, I immediately could tell where all these songs needed to fit. And more I listened back to it, I think there was no other sequence that would have worked for this record um, to make it any more cohesive. I'm yeah. just really proud of it. Everybody in the, the band, the guys all played really well. Um, Brian did a fantastic job, and uh, you know it's just it's just another step in in our journey. You know, yeah. we we started off here. Every record, we go off into a different route. <laughs> we experiment with different things. Um, you know, lyrically, I'm hoping that I'm improving and getting better. I think I'm the band improves. We get better at telling the story and and. You know, and, and portraying certain emotions musically. You know, it's just, it's an evolution. Yeah. Sounds cliche, but it is. It's an evolution, um, all the way around from every aspect of, uh, making records. Yeah, I have to say, it, it, it does me good to hear you mention sequencing of, of a track, uh, and because it's, it's become something that it almost seems you know, people just seem to slap the tracks, and and you know the hit single is going to be the second track. But you know, when mm-hmm. you look you look at back at the classics, you know, we I, I just had this conversation recently with a friend of mine, where you listen to Van Halen one, and as one song ends, you know immediately what's coming next. It becomes ingrained. The whole oh, thing it, it's it's a piece of work that's you know thirty five whatever minutes long or whatever that album is. That you know you can listen to you know Jamie's crying on its own, but it's in your head. It's it's a whole holistic approach, and that's really refreshing. You know, in this day of iTunes, and you know, get the single yeah. out there, and you know, try to get as many. Well, we spend a lot of time uh, in the uh, with spacing between songs as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a rhythm we like to keep. So there may be a song that ends completely dead, and we may do like a four count, and so the next one starts. Right. But, as, but as, as soon as the fade out ends, bam! The front, the, there's no space. I'm a second. Um, it all depends. And the only way that we judge that is we sit back and we listen. Yeah. So I back close my eyes and I listen to it end and and get the feel for when do I see the next song. Internally, seems like it's been starting out. Yeah. And uh, I think that keeps you know that keeps listeners uh, glued to it. You know, it's um, we live in a situation. Where people want instant gratification. Yeah. So, you know, they pop a CD in a lot of times, man. They're too lazy to, I want to listen to track six first. 
it's too lazy to hit that button five times and go to like six. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you've got, to, and we do that. We we want to get the point across as quick as possible. You know, and I've always been a fan of like intros, like you know, majestic intros, like Cocoon, yeah. and the intro to uh, Dream and, and All Fair um, to really build up. But you know, as an artist, it really like it. And some people just, you know, I don't want to hear the instrument. I don't, instrumental. I want to yeah. go right into something, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's weird. Yeah. But yeah, take that. So on this record, it was like right away, bam, we're going to get right in the face. First five tracks, before we even get to a ballad, track six, we're going to hit you and, and, and start this off right in your face on the first track. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, as far as is the track where, I, and and I guess this is something I, I I was dying to ask you the moment I heard it was, what are you doing to make that that incredible guitar tone at the beginning of Babylon? Uh, because it's you've got just this perfect amount of crunch and cleanliness, and is there anything special there? Is that just your normal rig? No, that's honestly, uh, and and most players, you know, that have been playing for a long time will tell you. The majority of your tone is in your hands. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, there's no secrets. I use JSX. I'm endorsed by PV. I use JSX heads. I use PV Windsor cabinets, which are like the cheapest cabinets they make. Um, on this, um, not only did I utilize um, miking the amps, but I used an, a J station, Johnson amps. I don't think they even make them anymore. Okay. I used to make this pod called a J station that I've had for a long time. And uh, we tweaked that up, too, and it's a combination of both of those sounds. Yeah. But, you know, the guitars that I play, I have my own line of guitars. Guilford mm-hmm. Guitars is the company name, and uh, I have a model called the Blaze model, and I have one called the Redeemer. And uh, you can go to guilfordguitars.com and check them out, and they play phenomenal. So it's a combination of everything. I say my rig and guitars makes up for about half of it, and the other half is just tone in your hands and relationship yeah. between the right and the left hand. Yeah, I have to say, that song, when I, like I said, when I listened to it, it kind of harkened me back to the first time I heard Show a Little Love, and, and the guitar that just, for whatever reason, you're talking about instant gratification. There, you're talking a few seconds, and I was like, right, this right. is a song I need to hear. Um, exactly. The, uh, the ballad on the album, I know uh, when you and I last talked, you were kind of toying with the idea of doing some... Um, uh, music for for kids and things like that, and almost like nursery rhyme type stuff. Um, did that kind of come into play? The, you know, the, the beginning of of the ballads and and also the the death comes tomorrow. The piano was that was that you playing that? Yeah, that's me playing the piano. It's nothing difficult. I'm by by far not an accomplished pianist, but I can get around. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I called for that. If, if that part would have called for something more intricate, I would have uh, you know gotten in a real piano player. But, sure. Yeah, I'm still in the process. I'm still going to do the lullaby record for kids, but you know, I have a two and a half year old little boy, and uh, I mean, he's you know, he's my world. Yeah, and, he keeps uh, he probably keeps you busy too. Oh, he's amazing, you know. And uh, he actually, I don't know if you got a copy, uh, the promo copy, but the the actual album when it comes the promo copies and the real album, he speaks on the record. Oh, okay. He talks on the album, and uh, at the very end, there's a hidden track, and there's some tracks with him talking on it. Okay. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, I have a daughter, she's older, you know, and, um, you know, and then I've got a two-year-old, and so now, having a two-year-old now, has just opened my eyes completely to a whole new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, very inspired by him, and 
the uh, song Bow Your Head was inspired by this boy. It was a music. His name's Trip Roth, and he uh, he just passed away this past weekend. He's the same age as my son. Oh. He had this rare skin disease. Okay. It took his life, but he got national attention. Um, they just they had him on NBC News, and the poor little guy, you know, he was with he lived with his mother, and and I think the mother's mother, and this little boy was going through this incredibly afflicted uh, young life. It just tore me up, and I had to write a song about him. And it's funny because I start I write I hear about it as a local story. I write about it all blown up all across the, the world, really. Mm. About this little boy there. You know, which is amazing because he just passed away this Saturday and on Friday, <clears throat> and my wife and I mailed him, his mother, some toys and um, a copy of the album and explained to his mother that the song had been written about him. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a really, it's a beautiful song and it's really touching. When people, if they hear the song and they go to the internet and look up Trip Roth and see his story, they're going <laughs> to, I guarantee you. There will never, they will not be a human being on the planet that will not be in tears yeah. when they when they see his story. Yeah. And then the last song, My Apology, mm-hmm. was written directly for my son. Basically, uh, you know the song Simple Man by Skinner? Oh, yeah. Mother telling her son about life and a simple message. I thought that was really cool. And that whole idea, you know, really made, it kind of inspired me to write a song like that for my son. And it's basically about apologizing for, you know, what the adults have done to butcher up the world the way mm. we have. Yeah. But here are some basic, um, this is about life. I'll always be there for you. And, and, you know, just, you know, keep your eyes focused, let the light shine in your eyes and, and that kind of thing. That's, it's a message for any parent to their kid. And, yeah. Uh, this is in particular to my son. So, yeah. The two yeah. pilots are, are very heartfelt. Mm, yeah. Very personal. Of, uh, yeah, very personal to me. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell with bow your head. You know, without knowing, I, I wasn't familiar with the story and didn't make the connection. But you could tell there was something obviously very inspiring uh, behind oh, the absolutely. lyrics of that, and that was phenomenal. Um, you guys, are you planning on hitting the road with this album, or what? What is the plans? Well, we're doing a free show February fourth in New Orleans, ten days before the album comes out, uh, where people can actually get the records for the first time. Kind of a warm-up. We've got a whole new show where we're doing a bunch of new stuff, a lot of old stuff, and we're doing an acoustic medley of all of our ballads right in the middle of the show. Okay, cool. And so we're going to yeah, we're gonna introduce that at this show. I think we're going to come up to the New York area for a few days in March. There's a, a tour being talked about for summertime, going to Europe, and then coming back and doing a month in the States. So... It's all in the planning process right now. Yeah, but I think I, we definitely want to hit the road. Too. Yeah, I think you guys, you guys are benefits from uh, you know a lot of the festivals that you know. Gladly, I'm starting to see in the United States. You know, with you know things like the M3 festival where. You know, yeah, we pe- were trying to get on that, but we couldn't get on it for whatever reason. So yeah, if anybody's out there, call the M3 festival and tell them there's Lillian X on it. With the man, you get the Lillian uh, X uh, army. You know, we've always been kind of like the bastard child of music. We never came from. You know, L.A. or New York, we never buddied up. With, we didn't have anybody helping us. Yeah. It's been like, you know, this the, the underdog. Yeah. That's what everybody calls us, the underdog band. Yeah, which and, uh, uh, 11 albums know, in, you guys have uh, outlasted a lot of... Absolutely, you know, man. I'm the, not stopping and, and I got another five in coming, so... 
Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, just real quick before we go, the um, I remember you had been doing a project where you could actually write a song with with people that yes. could get in touch with you. Is that still something you're you're? Uh, yeah, I still do. I'm working on one for uh, a girl right now whose dad passed away, and I've done it for several people. And what they do is, you know, um, I spend a lot of time on it. I get with them. They either give me lyrics that they want or ideas. Or those who don't have lyrics, they just tell me about the person they want it to be written for. And uh, and I, I talk to them about what instrumentation. I let them tell me what kind of songs do you like that are similar. And I, I create it, you know. And fortunately, every one of them has absolutely loved it, you know. Because I told them if you don't like it, you know, that's why I work with them throughout sure. the process. So yeah. it gets to a point where I'm looking for. I yeah. go back to the drawing board, but... I've been fortunate so far that everybody's really, really uh, enjoyed a lot. It takes a lot of time. I'm, I'm not going to lie it really does. Yeah, I mean, I imagine. That. And what was the website for that? You had a specific What's that? You had a specific website directly for that, didn't you? Yes, I think it's called, oh, gosh, create, create your song with steveblaze.com or something okay. like that. If you go to lillianax.com, there's a link to it. Okay. Yeah, that would probably be the easiest for all those projects. Yeah, that's uh, really cool. Yeah. So, tell everybody also they can go to guilfordguitars.com to check out the guitar line as well. Okay. And uh, any chance down the road that we might see like a live DVD? I know it's kind of a fan, fan with wishful thinking. It. Yeah, no, we're, we plan on doing it. We were going to do this show, but we figured, you know what, it's going to be the first show doing yeah. all the new material. Let's, let's wait so we're a little... More warm. Get in the groove. Yeah, we are going to be recording it for possible another live out probably as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, we plan on definitely doing that this year. There's so much material for a DVD, man. Oh, it's yeah. It's sickening. I could do a DVD on the, the history of the band. It would just, it would take 10 DVDs, you know? Yeah, you know, the bonus discs and all kinds of stuff. Here we get to... Oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. Years ago. Yeah, how many years? What year did you guys all get started? You got started in would it have been the late eighties. First 80s? album came out in eighty-eight. Eighty-eight, okay. So yeah, yeah. You've been at it um, for for quite a long time. You know, kind of like the, the quiet underdogs, but uh, like you said, you're yeah. still in it. So great, Steve. I want to thank you for uh, getting on the show with us today, man. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. And look, you got my cell number. Call me anytime, man. Check in with me. Say hi at any time. Don't hesitate to call me. And if I can help you with anything, let me know. And uh, Appreciate you spreading the word about the new record. I always wanted to learn to play guitar, but never had the time. Then I heard about Progressions Music Studio. Progressions introduced me to an entirely new and convenient method of music instruction. They brought the music to me. The instructors from Progressions Music Studio came to my home with their knowledge and expertise, which saved me time and money. They worked around my schedule and tailored a program around my needs and skill level. Best of all, I learned to play music like a guitar king of the 1960s. We didn't spend all of our time with drills or tunes from the 1860s. Progressions Music Studio offers a lot more than guitar. In fact, they have instructors for almost all instruments. Now I can rock it out on my electric like never before. Just imagine what they can do for you or the budding musician in your family. Don't make excuses. Make music. Check them out on the web at progressionsmusicstudio.com. That's P-R-O-G-R-E-S-S-I-O-N-S, musicstudio.com. Or call 724-777-4678. Hey, it's the big boys with the big noise, and I'm hearing a voice. In concert. The voice is saying, hey, Larry. Bring the big sound to the big down. In concert. 
special guest. Cool Mountain Gang. Cool is the other side of my pillow. Friday, March 30th at Kunsol Energy Center. Tickets are on sale now. Buy tickets at LiveNation.com. New album, A Different Kind of Truth. Available February 7th. All right, big thanks to Steve Blaze from Lillian Axe. Uh, uh, this is the second time I've had an opportunity to talk to Lillian Axe. I talked to him once for the... Uh, radio show that we uh, do a little bit of work with called hair metal mansion uh we talked to him before the last album came out dark red shadows and uh really really a cordial guy uh really enjoy talking to him again so uh thanks to steve for taking the time out of his day to talk to us now we're going to get into that interview with the author of the book mean deviation uh just right before the uh date of 2112 uh so we were uh, Talking a little bit of Rush and as well as uh, progressive heavy metal. So let's get into that interview. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show, author of the book Mean Deviation, Four Decades of Aggressive Heavy Metal, Jeff Wagner is joining us. Jeff, um, can you give us a little background on your work and where we might have uh, seen some of your work in the past? Sure. Um, I've done a lot of different stuff, I guess, in the last 20, 25 years, you know, in and around the music industry. I guess I first started writing for fanzines in the early 90s. Um, then I started my own fanzine. That led to a job with Relapse Records. Uh, from there, I went to be an editor of Metal Maniacs magazine for about five years um, okay. in the late 90s, early 2000s. I left that, you know, worked for a couple of other record labels. Um, and through all that time, I've done a a whole ton of other freelance writing with you know various websites and magazines and sure. and everything and uh, the mean deviation um, of course uh, my first book which came out about a year ago okay and you were did you have like a, a journalism background or are you just uh, someone who was in the music industry who sort of showed an aptitude towards writing or how did yeah that... I've always liked writing I've always been good at that in school I did go to school uh, for journalism okay um, but I did I never finished my my college degree actually and I just kind of went you know it sounds cliche but I just kind of followed my heart because mm -hmm. this is what I love to do and uh, there was no college degree for it so I just kind of figured out my own way to make a living uh, working with the music that I love and uh, you know although I've done other things in the music industry writing is probably my favorite thing to do yeah, yeah. anybody who can say they can make a living that's that long in the music industry doing anything is you know that's a tip of the hat <laughs> um, you mentioned writing from for magazines just before we get into your book, um, do you see magazines, especially print magazines, continuing to be relevant long term? I know it seems, you know, when we were younger, you had Hit Parade and Circus and Metal Edge and you mentioned Metal Maniac. Um, now on the newsstand in the United States, you have, you know, Revolver and then websites. Do you see it going more towards just strictly web based or what, what are uh, you your know, take? Sure. It, you know, five years ago, I would have said, oh, I see it all going that way. But now it seems to have all kind of leveled out. Same thing with downloading music. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems all that kind of stuff is leveled out. I think you still have you have a smaller grouping of people who want physical music or physical uh, print magazines. And I think there's always going to be an audience for it. I just think it, it sort of boiled down into a smaller audience. Um, but, you know, you have Decibel Magazine. Um, mm -hmm. Sure. I, I I contribute to them, and I think they have just a layout scheme alone that is really um, satisfying to look at and sit down with on the couch. It just you know there's something about 
holding the print magazine that you can't get from a website. I mean, I don't care about all the like, you know, oh, the you know, websites are, um, you know, more instant in terms of their the information that they're relaying. That's fine, and that serves a great purpose. But there's also something to be said about being able to roll up the magazine and take it with you to the doctor's office or wherever you're going, and, and just uh, I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of the the old school physical format. So yeah, I hear you. I, I know. I still I'll, I'll go kicking and screaming with my copy of Guitar World in my hand, and, and even though like you know I've seen you know the Nook and the, the Kindles and things like that, which I think is helping because it, it at least feels more like a book than than opening up and reading Blabbermouth or something. But right, uh, right. you know, it's good to see publishers kind of embracing you know the Kindle and iTunes with subscriptions to the magazine available digitally. But I'm still. You know, I'm still wanting the hardback books and the in the magazines and absolutely uh, you know bazillion points who published mean deviation uh, we were i think myself and the publisher were kind of against having a Kindle version of mean deviation because they look at their books as kind of art pieces mm-hmm. as much as they are you know pieces of of writing and information yeah. uh, but there was enough demand about mean deviation that we kind of said okay let's let's uh Let's put it out there because there is demand. If there's demand and people want to read it, that's the bottom line. That's the most important thing. But sure. for us, it's all. It, it really was about, um, you know, you, you can download it all you want. You, you're going to be able to pay half the price of the actual physical copy, but you're also not getting that tactile feel and that the really nice-looking physical thing in your hand. So, yeah. you know, it depends on what you want. Yeah, I guess as I, I personally am the son of a printer, so as my dad said, anything you can get in print, please take. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I agree with you. So let's talk about the Project Media Aviation. What what kind of puts your idea in, in your mind to write a book about, call it prog metal? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I'm, you know, I, I don't consider prog metal a genre, for one. I, I mm-hmm. consider it sort of a wide variety of bands who have a wide variety of influences, and it's a wide variety of sound. It's more like a, kind of an attitude toward uh, creating music. Mm-hmm. Um, but there had not been a book written yet on you know, the progressive side of the metal genre, and I think with all these metal books coming out, you know, metal's got a long enough history now that you know, we do have a multitude of different books, and I felt that there was one needed on the progressive, experimental, avant-garde side of the metal genre. And that's always something that I've been interested in. I, I like a wide variety of metal styles, but I've always gravitated towards the progressive and the weird and the, the experimental. So I just wanted to write that book. I wanted to be the first one to do it, and, and I, I can't wait for the second one to come out by somebody else. Yeah. Uh, in, in your mind, when, when did, I mean, progressive music has been around, obviously, the, the early days of bands like Genesis and Yes and, and you know, even Jethro Tull and such. But when, when do you think it kind of came into metal? There's always been that discussion of when did metal start? Was it Deep Purple? Was it Black Sabbath? But when did, when did you see progressive music start to make its influence in metal? Well, if you consider Black Sabbath a metal band, which I do, um, you know, I think the Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, was possibly the first merging of progressive rock ideals with mm-hmm. the early metal of the day. That's 1973. They had a wide variety of different instrumentation on that album. They had Rick Wakeman playing keyboards, mm-hmm. you know, from, of course, Yes and Straubs. And, um, they were just doing a lot of experimenting with the form. So already, pretty early on, and plus, you know, 1973 was, you know, Prog rock couldn't have been bigger, so sure. it seeped into Sabbath music as well. And I think I think the first real merging after that was probably Rush twenty one twelve, or Progressive Steel as well. Um, yeah. Rush early Rush. If you look at the footage, if you listen to the music, it's like it's got the qualities of any other early metal band. Um, 
but of course they were also hugely influenced by Gentle Giant and Yes and Genesis and King Crimson and um, you know that started to really show up in their music. So I, you know I'd say Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, Caress of Steel, Twenty One Twelve are the three first three true prog metal albums. Yeah, I mean you you bring up a great point, and obviously as we we uh, approach the date Twenty One Twelve, uh, obviously that album is on everyone's mind, and it certainly is a you know, I don't think anyone's going to argue that that's a progressive album, but Caress of Steel, I think, is is a, a great call in your part because it's an album that I think a lot of people kind of looked at, you know, maybe raised an eyebrow and said, you know, what is this? But, right, right. You know, they went from being, I mean, the, the first album, you know, had, you know, a little bit of the element of what we know as Rush, but it also had a little more Led Zeppelin-y sort of feel to it. But, it had more uh, Zeppelin than Rush, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it, I can certainly understand as a band making their first album, they didn't want to make Caress of Steel as their first album because, you know, as many people love and hate Rush, I don't think if they make Caress of Steel as their first album, we'd probably be talking about them, you know, in, in the light we are now, as the record sure. industry probably would have gobbled them up. But what made Caress of Steel, um, to you, or even 2112, what, what were the things that kind of changed in your mind between the first couple albums? Well, yeah, I mean, and second album, Fly By Night, was kind of like had one foot in the first Rush album, which mm-hmm. which was just showing their influences in hard rock, like Cream and, and, and Zeppelin and stuff. And then it also, you know, of course, Neil Peart had come in t- uh, to the band by that time. And, you know, he already started taking their lyrics in a, in a pretty intellectual direction. And sure. uh, it really kind of changed their scope and, and their direction. So so then you, then you go to Caress of Steel and... They're, by this time, those guys are really immersed in their prog influences, and you've got a song like The Necromancer, which is this multi-part sort of fantasy tale. Uh, it's got heavy parts. It's got delicate parts. It really kind of runs the gamut. The, the whole uh, Fountain of Lamneth, that whole 20 minutes so- song, not not as successful of a song in terms of the long-form f- song as 2112 the song was, mm-hmm. but it, 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 it showed them... You know, just tackling uh, a pretty, pretty wide scope of ideas and sounds, and um, so I don't know. Caress of Steel was just like this experiment, and I'm not going to say it's a failed experiment because I love the album, but mm. it didn't resonate with a lot of people the way 2112 did. I think they were still kind of finding their feet as an as an experimental and progressive band. And then you have a song like Bastille Day, the one that opens the album, and to me, that's almost a blueprint of what came later in European power metal. I mean, yeah. so they were they were way ahead of their time in a, in a number of ways. Um, and I, I, I think people look at the song, I think I'm going bald, and they just write the album off because of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? That was uh, certainly a, 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 my mission. I've Reason. That was certainly uh, probably one of them. You're going, what the heck? I mean, Bastille Day. You know, when I listened to that track, um, you know, I, was, I didn't experience Rush in chronological order. I was uh, much later into, into getting into Rush, so I was going backward into their catalog. And right. Bastille Day, I thought, you know, really didn't throw any curveballs at you. But uh, you know, from there, the rest of the album I was like, okay, what is all this? Oh, yeah, yeah, um, Lakeside Park, the super mellow, melancholy thing. And, mm-hmm. and then you get into those two long songs, one after the other, and uh, you're like, okay, this this band has turned a corner, and they're gonna, just going to do what they want, you know, music industry be damned, you know? Yeah. Now, as far as, you know, the term progressive, maybe, maybe it would be a good idea to kind of give us your take on what makes it. Music progressive. I mean, it's a term you hear, and, and a lot of people are like, okay, that's the band, but the, not you know, post 
uh, eight minute song. That must be a progressive band or a jam band. It's got to be one of the two if they're going over eight minutes. But what what constitutes progressive? <laughs> it, it's you know I tried to write four hundred pages on it in the <laughs> book, and it's still you know it's still a tough question. Um, I don't think that an eight minute song or chop like highly technical chops necessarily make you progressive. I think progressive is a state of mind. I also don't think that a band that naturally evolves and changes over time are necessarily progressive. I think that's more of a, just a natural evolution thing. Sure. Progressiveness to me is, you know, the members of the band, the creative element of the band having a unique vision. They don't, you know, they, they, they have probably have an eclectic set of influences, but when they apply that to the music they're making, um, and hopefully the music they're making is something that is of a, of a unique vision that nobody else has really thought of before. I mean, nothing's truly original anymore, but certainly, you know, there are visionaries out there still. And I think, I think it's just a matter of like marked market originality, like something that's significantly original, um, tries things that are daring with music, mm-hmm. tries ideas that are avant-garde or sort of new or unconventional. Um, so this is why it's not really a sound. It's not a style. I don't think progressive anything is a style, whether it's progressive rock or progressive metal or progressive folk or whatever. Mm. It's more of an application of a variety of influences and a certain eclecticism uh, and a certain unique and original vision, I think. I think that's yeah, I mean, about as clearly as I can yeah, it. It's probably it's, it's very clear. But. It's like trying to, to grab air sometimes. It's a very, you know, it's one of those things you kind of feel, you feel that it's progressive, but you can't necessarily say, you know, this is why. You know, you listen to Dream Theater. Right. Um, probably, um, you could argue one of the most successful progressive heavy metal bands, and you really can't say, you know, other than the fact that some songs are a little longer than most metal bands, you know, here is what's progressive about them. But, you know, you look at their catalog of work, and you can certainly say that. Right, um, right. And I think, you know, Dream Theater, when they came out in 1989, um, at that point, if you listen to the first album, if you can get past the terrible production, because mm-hmm. uh, otherwise, otherwise I think it's a very good album. Um, but, you know, at that time, they were kind of fresh and new and different and progressive because they were merging what Fates Warning and Queensryche had kind of attempted before them, but they were kind of bringing it into, they kind of stretched that into two more worlds. They stretched it into the heavier sort of palm-muted kind of Metallica world where it was a mm-hmm. bit heavier. And they also stretched back further into, like, Kansas and um, Genesis and stuff like that. So yeah. But what happened was with Dream Theater, it became their style, and they really didn't deviate from that very much in the, in the coming albums. I mean, they they probably crystallized that around the third album, Awake, and then from then on, they were just kind of doing that style. And I don't think that's necessarily progressive, but certainly they're a very great, you know, very good band, and they've made some great albums. And oh, certainly. Um, now you mentioned Queensrÿche. I mean, there's a band that. You know, you alluded to earlier bands that change their style and the natural evolution of music. Um, Queensryche, to me, always feels like they're intentionally trying to sound completely different on every record. Um, and, and admittedly, many times they end up laying an egg, but occasionally they really hit the nail on the head. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your, your opinion of Rush, or I'm sorry, of Queensryche? Yeah, sure. I mean, I you know, if you look at their progression in the 80s, it was pretty significant. I mean, they started in 84 with the CP that sounded a lot like Iron Maiden. Um, and then two years later, they're putting out this, this streamlined, kind of sublime, experimental 
uh, album with, with, with a very unmetal production called Rage for Order. I mean, that was just two short years, and these guys are young. And, and then after that, they tackle this, this uh, Operation Mindcrime concept, and that, you know, that was a triumph in a lot of ways, I think. Um, so they were always stretching and, 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 and trying to, to sort of just defy the metal stereotype. I think that's one thing that they did really well. Um, is they broke a lot of stereotypes, broke a lot of boundaries um, for what metal was supposed to be at the time. Sure. My my opinion on them now is not so great. I really, like you say, they do try to sound, they sound a lot like they're trying hard to put out a very different album every time, and none of those albums have really impressed me that much over the years. Yeah. Uh, I feel, I hate to say this, but I feel like they've kind of lost something. You know? Yeah, it, it seems that to me, I don't know, if, and I don't want to put this on Chris DeGarmo because, I mean, there's certainly capable musicians and Scott Rockenfield, Michael Wilton, etc., but it, to me it seems the band's lost its cohesiveness. I, you know, I would would love to be a fly on the wall when when the band is talking about new material to see if the, the consensus is there. And I sometimes question if it is. If you listen to, you know, Michael Wilton's, uh, you know, other projects, mm-hmm. Much more metal and Queensrÿche sounding than what we hear today from Queensrÿche. Right, and Jeff Tate doesn't like to talk about them as a metal band anymore. He's, mm. He seems to have really wanted to distance himself from that. So that's, and I'm sure he's got a big say in what the band does. You know. Oh, I, am, I imagine, yeah. It just you know the whole cabaret thing and the wines, and it just seems to be <laughs> kind of missing the mark anymore. And, and this is a person who loves. Queensrÿche, you know. Sure. So, uh, you mentioned Iron Maiden, and there's a band that that you know I think. A lot of people that saw them on their last trip through North America might have seen a much more progressive mm-hmm. Iron Maiden. Um, do you kind of put them into that lump, or is it? In, 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 yeah, in the book, I throw them in there with like Metallica or something as as being one of these sort of proto progressive bands, bands that really were also stretching boundaries, knocking down stereotypes. Um, you know, Iron Maiden made teenagers run for the library in, in mm-hmm. the 80s because they were tackling these like, you know, songs that revolving around Edgar Allan Poe works and um, you know, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, epic poem, things like that. Um, that. This was quite a bit different in the early 80s than what most metal bands were doing. And also, they, you know, they did work with long form, you know, song length uh, and Steve Harris was always a huge fan of Genesis. He was one of these guys in the 70s who had like a Genesis back patch. I mean, mm. he's, he's been stated as saying so. It's like, um, so he came from that tradition. And uh, yeah, so I, I think Maiden does, definitely has some progressive aspects for sure. Yeah, and then there's a band, I mean, you listen to them, I think they even maybe have become more progressive in, in their songwriting with the last few albums, which is which is good. I mean, you, you hate to see a band stand still, you know, and, and just right. rehash greatest hits. Now, the book itself, um, can you give us an idea of how the book is laid out and what, you know, what we can expect in the book? Sure. It begins looking at progressive rock, like things like King Crimson, and even going back before then, like the really early pioneers in rock, like uh, Pink Floyd and Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. uh, and even the Pretty Things were mentioned. Um, these bands in like around 67, Beatles even, um, started to expand the form into like a less of a pop format, less of a singles format, and more of an album format. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, we get into like looking at early metal and, you know, when and how prog rock and metal sort of started to merge a little bit. And, I, you know, I talked about that earlier in the interview with Sabbath and, and um, Rush. And then from there, you know, looking at 
uh, sort of what happened in the 80s with uh, more proto-metal bands such as Rush, or I'm sorry, such as Iron Maiden and Metallica. Even some early Megadeth I find to be kind of yeah. dif- difficult and complex on a level that uh, progressive musicians took influence from that. Yeah. Um, a band yeah. like Watchtower who came out and really uh, threw in jazz fusion influences and Metallica influences into metal, into their sound, and um, they were Watchtowers. I spent a lot of time on Watchtower because they were really one of the first. And then, you know, looking at Face Warning, Queensryche, Dream Theater. And then what happens in the book after that is this explosion of all kinds of different bands taking all kinds of different roads in a quest to sort of, you know, find their uniqueness and their originality and to push themselves the way that, the you know, their influences push them. So... Um, so you're kind of journeying through the whole ride, and, and you mentioned yeah. some bands in there that you, you know, you even forget. You know, Watchtower isn't one that you know you necessarily right. think of when you're grabbing some CDs, but right, it wasn't. It was. I didn't want to focus too much on the bands that are the most popular ones. Mm-hmm. I wanted to focus on the ones that I felt were the most progressive, and then you know, lay out the argument as to why uh, they're so interesting, and and kind of break them down a little bit. And um, it's a dense book. There's a lot of bands being thrown at you, and there's a lot of little micro movements being thrown at you. Sure. Yeah, uh, a lot of photographs, or is this more? Yeah, of a tons. It's a it's a pretty photo heavy book. Um, there's a nice, uh, I think, 16 page color spread in the middle. Okay. Um, and I had, you know, most of these photos I would say are unique in terms of, uh, you know, I sought them out. I sought all all the photographers and collected all the photos and wanted to get stuff that was just going to be unique to the book that you probably haven't seen anywhere else. Sure. Um, okay. So it's a, it's a really good looking book, and like like anything that Bazillion Points does, it it you know. I, 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 I'd be the last one to say how it reads. That's up to other people to judge, but mm-hmm. it certainly looks fantastic. Like, I'm really happy with the way it came out uh, yeah. in terms of how it looks. Yeah, it's good to see your baby kind of uh, grow up there with the, when they put it out and, you know, you can hold it in your hand. That's got to be really exciting. That, that was an exciting day. Yeah. yeah. Now, you can get the book, obviously, at um, is it available through Amazon and stuff. I know it's available at oh, Amazon and, like, any, any, you know, any of the larger stores that still exist. I guess I've seen it at Barnes & Nobles, and I've gotten pictures from people all over the country that have seen it at Barnes & Noble. So it's available, every, you know, just about anywhere. I mean, obviously, with the net now, it's easy to find. Sure. I know you have, there's a website, Bazillion, is set up. It's mean-deviation.com. We'll take you right to the page where you can order Right. A copy of, you know, largely inexpensive for 20 bucks. You get a signed copy shipped. That's, right. Know, can't argue with that. Um, what does the future hold for you? I mean, you, um, you still doing some writing or is there a, maybe a follow up book in the, in the future? I'd love to do a book. I've got a couple ideas, uh, which I don't want to jinx, even though I'm not <laughs> superstitious. Uh, but, you know, until something's like, Official, I don't want to say anything, but I, I, I think I've got a couple more really good books in me. I'm never going to be prolific like a Martin Popoff, only because I just don't have the time. I have a day job currently with Century Media, I work at home, and you know I'm not fresh for writing at the end of the day. So I don't, I don't know how these people pump out books like like the way they do, because uh, uh, I, I take a very sort of measured approach to to the writing, and it takes me a while. But but you know with writing, I'm I'm doing a a, a column for NoiseCreep.com, okay, which uh, is a pretty big sort of they're funded by AOL, and, and they've got a pretty cool little music thing, and they, they want me to kind of do freeform stuff, and that column's actually called Me Deviation. Uh, and I'm doing stuff for Decibel Magazine almost every issue. Um, so, you know, I, I keep my head in the writing game just because I enjoy the hell out of it. Awesome, awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me, Jeff. Well, same to you. Yeah, I appreciate uh, it. 
All right, a big thanks goes out to Jeffman and also, uh, again, Steve Blaze from Lillian X for taking the time out of their schedule. If you'd like to find more information about us, you can go to www.ironcityrocks.com or you can find us on Facebook at Iron City Rocks or twitter.com forward slash Iron City Rocks. Uh, you can find all that information. Again, if you're listening to this on or before February 1st, if you RSVP to the Rush Day event, you'll be entered to win a copy of Jeff's book. Uh, and you can find more information or purchase a copy of that book at mean-deviation.com. Uh, the Lillian Axe album will be dropping on February 14th, uh, Valentine's Day, so you can get your sweetheart a copy of Steve's new album. Uh, and we want to thank you guys for taking the time out of your day to listen to us. We'll catch you next time. 